0: Well, good morning, everyone, and as we're heading to our seats, I've got some announcements, so before we head home, we need to keep the house up. Uh, The first thing that I want to bring up is that uh, baptisms are going to be happening next week, the week of the 26th. Uh, They're getting uh, pushed back to after the holidays. Uh, One other thing I want to put on your radar is the Eve of the Eve gathering that we're doing, and that's going to be over at Peace Lutheran in Canal Winchester. It's going to be on December 23rd, the eve of the eve, and that's going to be happening at 7 p.m. And then, as always, I really want to uh, plug our community groups. It's where community happens. It's where we really experience the life of the church. So if you're not involved in one, I'd really encourage you guys to take a look at the green sheets we have over on the Connect booth and uh, meet up with someone who's either a leader or someone who's involved in... uh, talk about what it looks like to get plugged in there. Uh, Now, as we are coming into our text for the morning, we are going to be in Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse uh, 13, and then continuing all the way through uh, chapter 53 and verse 6 for the corporate reading of God's Word. And um, I just want to say good morning, and it's my blessing and privilege to be able to stand up here and talk to you guys about uh, what God is doing in history as well as what he's doing in our lives today. Uh, It's my pleasure to serve uh, on staff here at Maranatha as the director over the kids ministry and the student ministry. And uh, today I want to be able to stand up here and talk about what God is doing today, but also what God said in eternity. Now, our purpose here today is for me to get up and to explain to you all that Christ the Messiah, the Son of God that was promised to his people Israel through God's prophet Isaiah, is not only sufficient for our sins, but present in our sufferings. And this is an atonement that will not only make sense of Israel's past, but will secure their spiritual future. Now, at the beginning of this series, we talked about how God promised to Adam and Eve in the moment of their fall, victory over death. He promised to Abraham an inheritance that would not wither or fade, and he promised to his servant David a kingdom that would be unassailable, a place and a presence with him. But today, I believe that we come to the linchpin of all these promises, because without an atoning Savior, without reconciliation between God and man, the promise of victory over death is nothing but a never-ending struggle it would be better for us to be released from our sin in death than to continue on in our struggle with it. In the promise to Abraham, what would we have to pass down? What would be our inheritance if all that we had after all of this was enmity with our creator? And with the promise of home and kingdom that was given to David, what would that kingdom and that house be built on except for the crumbling foundation of our own misdeeds? So as we approach a suffering Savior, as we approach a humble servant, I want us to think through this idea of what does Christ promise to us in his atonement. And my desire is that we'll understand all the other promises of God through what was promised to us in Christ our Savior. Because they're all indeed possible because of Christ's coming. His first advent will keep us secure until his second And now understanding Isaiah, and specifically this passage in Isaiah, hinges on a few pieces of context. And this sets the tone for both the heart state of Israel, the condition of the kingdom at the time, the time of writing, the response of God to these situations, and we don't have the luxury of simply plucking out a verse out of context and making of it what we will. Because it's true that God's word never returns void, but it also doesn't sojourn without purpose or destination or place in history. Now, you're going to hear all this, and you're going to think, this guy is making a whole lot of bricks without a whole lot of straw. There's not a lot keeping this together. And I would encourage you guys that if you are patient with me, you're going to see a return on that investment. We're going to have something built here by the end of the day. So if you were to read through all of Isaiah, in the beginning of the book, you would find in chapter 7 this sort of political conflict that's going on between Israel and Judah, between Assyria and all the neighboring nations. And the king at the time, Hezekiah, is approached by Isaiah. And he basically says that the Lord is going to deliver you from your enemies and is going to give you a sign that he is with you. And Hezekiah, whether out of disbelief or some sort of false piety, basically turns down this blank check from God. God says to him, you can ask of me anything, whether it's high as heaven or as low as hell, and I will give that to you. And Hezekiah turns him down. And this is an indication of the heart state of Israel, the complete lack of trust that the king at the time had at the God that had been shepherding his people forever. But we'll see that God is faithful earlier on in Isaiah because he does deliver them from the threat of the northern kingdom because at the time, Israel was not one kingdom. There was the northern kingdom also called Ephraim or Israel and there was the southern kingdom called Judah. And this narrative largely follows along with the narrative of the southern kingdom. And we see that after Hezekiah came his son. And because of the general righteousness of that child, their posterity was secured for a few generations. But that child did not continue on in that presence. That child, Manasseh, who reigned after his father, Hezekiah, cultivated a heart of idolatry cultivated a heart of understanding things through his own lens as opposed to what God had given to him. So sadly, Judah would have a downward decline, as the northern kingdom Israel also did, into exile, into conflict, into the deliverance of other nations rather than the security of God. Now there were other good kings, there were about eight in total over all of the history of Israel, but when you compare that to the idea that there were 30 kings at the time, it doesn't seem that overwhelming. It doesn't seem like the nation was following after God all that closely. Now what I want to communicate here is that this is a disaster for the Jewish people. This concept of exile, this concept of discipline must have been earth-shattering for the people living in the nation at the time. I want you to think about all the prosperity that Solomon brought in, all of the gifts and offerings, all of the ways that he led the people in the worship of the Lord. And if you think of this idea of a wealthy nation that not only finally built this temple to God that we talked about last week, but lined it with almost 9,000 pounds of gold on the inside, and the opulence and the prosperity and the influence and the power that must have communicated, and then to see it all slip away, it must have been both heartbreaking and terrifying. And if you're not familiar with sort of the history of the Israelite kingship, basically what it boils down to is that the first king after the period of the judges was Saul, who reigned from approximately 1043 to 1011 BC for about 32 years. David got 40 years after him from 1011 to 971, and then Solomon 40 years after his father David from 971 to 931. But then after this was 345 years of division, nearly 350 years of evil kings, of a lack of vision, of a lack of any kind of posterity towards an understanding of who God is. Now, Israel did not have one good king in this period between 931 and 722. So when Assyria came to carry them into exile in second kings, that was rightly deserved. And Judah, in the same way, having not been able to overcome the general spiritual acedia of these kings, was carried off under Babylon in 586. But God doesn't leave his people alone in exile. He doesn't leave them alone without hope and without a promise. And in the book of Isaiah, the messianic promise that we saw all the way back in Genesis is as clear as it has ever been. Because in this book, beginning in chapter 40, when God is promising consolation to his people, after 39 chapters of oracles of judgment, we begin to find these things called the servant songs, and that is what we approach today in the 52nd chapter of Isaiah. And these sort of servant songs, these ideas of consolation, this 26-chapter letter of comfort that Isaiah delivers is what is going to be held onto by Israel in the midst of their captivity. It's going to carry them from 586 all the way through to Matthew chapter 1, where this promise they've been waiting for, this hope that they've been longing for, shows up in the flesh. So now that you have this foundation, now that you know that this is a book written to a people who are about to go into exile, and you know that this is not some happy-go-lucky period in Jewish history, uh, I would love it if we would stand for the reading of God's word beginning in chapter 52 and verse 13. And it says, "'Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred, beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind.'" So he shall sprinkle many nations, kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces." He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So now, as we approach this servant song, which I mentioned earlier, we find that, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, and he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, in the other places in Isaiah, in chapter 42, 49, and 50, we find this servant being revealed to Israel. We find that in the 42nd chapter, the servant is this spirit-empowered, gentle judge that the Lord delights in and calls righteous. In chapter 49, he is a messenger, he is a light, he is called from birth to gather Israel and indeed all nations back to God. And then in chapter 50, the servant is an obedient servant, trusting God even to the point of the mocking humiliation of the nations and their abuse. His unrelenting confidence is that God is the one who will vindicate him knowing that nobody else can declare him guilty. So as we come to this text, we find that the servant will be exalted. Now, the interesting piece about that word specifically is that in the other ten places this adjective translated exalted is used in Isaiah, they only ever apply to the Lord. They only ever apply it to Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. But here, in this instance, this singular figure in Isaiah is to be exalted alongside the Lord of hosts. So who then could this be? Is this finally the promised Messiah that the nation had been hoping for, acting with all the wisdom of Solomon and bringing them along for that hoped-for salvation, that return to national acclaim and power and prosperity? But the first big surprise comes in verse 14 in chapter 52. It says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So we find not a glorious Messiah, but a marred one. And what does it mean to be marred? It means that it is beneath the state that it originally came to us in. It is less than we would hope for. It is less than we would seemingly expect to find in the promised Messiah from generations past. That's the hope of Abraham and David that was the promise that was given to Adam and Eve. But is this new for what God is doing with his people? Is this new for the leader of his people? Is exaltation the norm for a servant of God? Or is it humility? Because as we trace back through Jewish history, we find that the king that the people picked for themselves was Saul. He was tall, he was handsome, and he looked like all the world to be a king to all the world. But that was not the servant that God chose. Because when David was anointed by the prophet, when David was given this commission into ministry, he was nothing more than a child. When he went out to fight Goliath, when he went out to stand before the people of Israel to defend them, He wasn't this prestigious king. He wasn't this massive man. He wasn't this titan in battle. He was a child whose armor didn't fit him correctly, who had to leave it aside because it was too heavy and he couldn't move well. And we see here again that the servant of the Lord is not who we would pick for ourselves. He doesn't come in all the majesty and all of the glamour that we would kind of expect, but instead he comes humbly as a servant. And the implication here is that this obedient servant would be just as worthy of exaltation as any king, but would be just as humble as any beggar. And while it would seem that he would be the least of mankind, in reality, he is the only one worthy of exaltation alongside a thrice holy God that we encounter in Isaiah 6. A God set apart so holy that even angels cover their face at the sight of him for fear of being unworthy. And what does this humble servant do? It says in chapter 52 and verse... 15, that he shall sprinkle many nations, and that kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So what kings are these? Are these Jewish kings? Well, clearly not, because they've never been told of this Messiah. They've never been told of this promise. They don't know what they're seeing. And what does it mean that the servant is sprinkling them? Well, this isn't an ice cream Sunday. This isn't him trying to say, oh, he's going to get dessert ready for him and serve it to him on a silver platter. This sprinkling that they're referring to is the sprinkling of blood on an altar that the priest in the temple would do to make atonement for sin. This is sort of this capstone in this ritual, in this movement of deliverance. And this atonement for sin, this action that this servant would take to gather the nations to himself would leave them speechless. So who is this humble servant that would leave kings speechless at the act of what he accomplishes for them, but would astonish those he came to save, that would astonish us by his humility and by his suffering. Isaiah asks, almost rhetorically, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at at him. And no beauty that we should desire him, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And now that we find this, and now that the mouths of foreign kings have been stopped up, the question is asked, who is God faithful to? Who has he revealed his arm to? And now you guys can check my biblical history, but as far as I remember... Uh, God didn't deliver a ram to save Ishmael, but he did that for Isaac. God didn't reveal the golden staircase to Esau, but he did to Jacob. And God didn't deliver the Canaanites out of Egypt and didn't prepare a way for them into the promised land and clear it out of all their enemies, but God has been faithful to Israel from the beginning. From his covenant with Abraham, God has not relented in his faithfulness to Israel. Go on. So as we say that... God has revealed his arm to Israel. I want us to understand that God has been good a long time and God has been faithful a long time to his people. And here's Jesus being born in Bethlehem, being brought up in the backwater of Nazareth in his forefather David's backyard and his people don't take notice of him. Here comes the fulfillment of the promise that they've been waiting for for hundreds, no thousands of years and the people of Israel take no notice of it. So, why didn't they recognize him? I think the reason is that they were looking for someone who would come with all the glory of David or Solomon. They were expecting an entry into Jerusalem after the conquest of foreign enemies or Roman governors. Because I think if you asked Isaiah for an assessment of the Jewish upper crust in Jesus' day, he would diagnose the same problem. That Israel, like Hezekiah in the days of Isaiah, in the days of Jesus, they were just as concerned with saving political faith. They were just as concerned with a political salvation. In a way, they set their sights too low because instead of a conquering king, they were given an itinerant rabbi. Instead of riding in on a war horse, he came in on a donkey. That's like expecting someone to show up on a limo and riding in on a tricycle. They were anticipating a physical, political redemption, a return to form as an independent nation, a thriving economic power. They were hoping for international acclaim. But what God provides instead is an unhindered approach to the very throne that that struck Isaiah dumb except for the confession of sin. The question that remains for us today is, how did Christ accomplish this? And surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. We've all gone astray, we've all gone to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So finally we come to the heart of the sermon this morning. Everything today that I've got to say that's of consequence, everything that's been rattling around in me for the last couple weeks as I've been getting ready to address you all about this, is found in these three verses. And I know for a lot of us, the holiday season can be difficult. For a lot of us, the holiday season doesn't always feel like this kind of merry, jolly Christmas that's painted for us, and all the songs, and all the carols, and all the marketing, and that can be difficult. But here, I think we find an answer to a season that can feel empty. Whether it is due to sickness or loss, we find that we have a Savior in Christ that suffers alongside us. So as we approach this miraculous occasion, as we approach the Incarnation, I want us to consider this, that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And as I think about this, I can't help but think of some of my dearest friends. Uh, The closest one that I have is not a Christian, and he's of the position that if God exists, then the vast amount of suffering we experience should not. That if God exists, our suffering should not. It's the classic problem of pain, it's the theodicy. If a good God is all powerful, then why does the world exist in such a pitiful state? The world demands that we ask and answer this question if we're going to have a coherent theological system. They ask, where is God in our griefs and our sorrows? And the answer, resoundingly, surprisingly, sovereignly, and painfully, is alongside us. We don't have a savior that pronounced atonement via fiat. He did not wave his hand and dismiss the charges against us. He did not sit on high and look down into our circumstances and say, man, someone really ought to fix that. Is anyone doing anything about this? Instead, what happens, what God does is, according to Philippians 2, he empties himself. The God that has been enshrouded since the beginning of eternity in unapproachable glory empties himself and was born into poverty. He took the place of a servant, not counting equality with God, something to be grasped, but in all things was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did not exempt himself from our predicament so that we may not be disqualified from his presence. It is no longer the purifying will of God that is carried to us with tongs by an angel, but the weight of all our collective sorrow and sin and iniquity that is borne away from us in the very body of the eternal Son of God. And it is in this that we understand the answer to the problem of pain that is such a question at the forefront of our minds and at the mind of the world that sees all of existence as a torment. as something to get through, as something to struggle through, as something to rise and grind against. Because if sorrow is a result of sin, which we know from Jeff's sermon in Genesis that it is, then we can't break that correlation. Without the removal of sin, there can be no dissolution of sorrow. And God, being mindful of and intent on caring for his children, is not content for this to be their permanent state. So we find in Christ a Savior that suffers alongside us, that takes up our griefs, that bears our sorrows, and carries them away from us. And this is not only a need for Israel that Isaiah is writing to. This is a need for us today, because just like Israel, we may be hoping for a political redemption. Of all the problems that humanity is facing, though, the one of sin-induced sorrow is one of the few that is universal. It is one of the few that everyone is going to come into contact with at some point. So what I want to recommend to you now is don't make the same mistake of our forefathers. Do not come to Jesus first for the problem that is not foremost. Don't bring to him your want for a more comfortable life before you come to him on bended knee and confess the sin that would keep you from him. Don't bring to him the conflict that you have with your employer before you reckon with the enmity that you have with your creator. And don't describe to him the flaws of your relationship before you ascribe to him the glory for what was accomplished at Calvary. Don't shun the sorrow in Christ that opens for you the pathway to joy. And as we think about this sin-stricken Jesus, as we think about this suffering Messiah, as we think about all the things that he came to do, I want us to also remind you that we have an atonement in Christ that is greater than our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed, and we can be healed. And how great an answer to sin is the gift of grace which God purchased for us on the cross. And it might seem to us that at times God dwells in unapproachable glory that we mere mortals could never come near. It would seem that the chasm that spans between us is far too great to cross. That all hope would be lost in the voyage that lays between the chasm that spans between earth and heaven. And we would be absolutely right. Apart from a savior, we would be absolutely right. Because the Odyssey from earth to heaven, from sin to salvation, would make Odysseus blush. Because if all that lay between us were things like harpies and cyclops, trojans and witches, storms and seas, it'd be easy. We could cross that, we could do that, we could fight it out. But instead what we encounter, our predicament instead is not that of external conflict, but of our internal nature. It's not an external threat to defeat, but an internal sin that we need to confess and have taken up. So thanks be to God in Christ that the righteousness that proceeds from him is so much greater than the iniquity that dwells in us. And one thing that I've heard more often than you would think when I talk to Jesus about my non-Christian friends is the idea that I would burst into flames if I crossed the threshold of a church. But what I want to recommend to you guys today is that there is some innate part of the human condition that recognizes itself as unworthy. I think there's a reason that when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah 6, that his first impulse was not for mitigation but for confession he didn't say well you know you might have seen all this stuff that i've done but here's my spin on it he said instead i'm lost i'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips and what i would recommend to you is that the god that we worship is not only your god that god has been good a long time and if he can redeem a nation with a history of evil kings with a history of idolatry and sacrifice that is not to him he can work in a household of broken families." If he can redeem a wicked kingdom, he can redeem a broken household. And while we may not see the outcome of that on our near horizon, we can know that he's good in eternity because of what Isaiah preaches to us here. Because while we might see the troubles of today, Isaiah preaches to us a hope for forever. That God's capacity to redeem is greater than our capacity to sin against him. And something that I've been... Sort of ruminating on for a while is an old quote by an old pastor named Benjamin Grosvenor. If you know his real name and how to pronounce it, please come to me afterwards because I'm not 100% sure I've got that. But in his article, The Temper of Jesus, he encourages us in teaching what Christ would have said to the soldier on the cross that stood by that pierced him with a spear to confirm that he was dead. What would Christ have said to that person who sinned and assaulted him in the body? Benjamin recommends that there is another way, a better way of coming up my heart. Christ would say that if he will repent and look upon him who he has pierced and will mourn, I will cherish him in that very bosom that he wounded. He shall find in the blood he shed an ample atonement for the sin of shedding it. And tell him from me that he will put me to no more pain and displeasure by refusing this offering of my blood than when he drew it forth. And this is the mental block that we have to overcome. We have to get over the idea that Christ may be sufficient for our Sundays, but he's not good for Monday through Saturday. We have to overcome this idea that we are either not good enough at all and should never come or the idea that we need to work up to a basic, basic, sufficient moral baseline to come through the doors of a church. We need to stop putting that front forward to our non-believing friends, our colleagues, our coworkers, our family members because Christ preaches in one of his parables that the invitation to be with him goes out not only to the moral upper crust of society but to those who are completely destitute of any kind of morality. And he would take you so destitute in your own moral estimation, and seat you next to kings and princes. And it's no surprise. If God can redeem his people from 350 years of evil kings, he can redeem you. He can redeem your neighbor and your loved ones. Because God is not only your God, but he's the God of everyone you have ever met. And so if God can make a way out of idolatry and human sacrifice, he can make a way out of addiction and hopelessness if we would come and seek that forgiveness. Because when Christ came in his first advent, he came not only to suffer with his people, but to take up their sorrows and be acquainted with their grief, but also to identify himself with them in righteousness. Because God the Father, from the beginning of eternity, purposes to redeem the children of Adam from the estate of death through God the Son, in God the Holy Spirit. Said another way, God resolves the problem of sin in the person of Jesus for the preservation of his people. Because sin is such a serious problem that God showed up in the flesh to deal with it. And God is so great a Savior that while we might not be able to bear up under the weight of sin, sin is not able to bear up against the righteousness of God. And who are we to reject this? Who are we to say that God took a half measure in the redemption of his people? Who are we to say that God took his glory half-heartedly? So church, I implore you today to believe that God bears with your sorrows and is bigger than your sins. But it's not only that we have an atonement in the death of Christ. And it's well and good that we would receive forgiveness of sins, but without the lasting ministry of a living Savior, then what hope would we have to persevere through a world that is still contaminated with the presence of sin if we are not under its possession and its power? What triumph would it be if the Messiah that came would not be able to abide with us? And like Jeff said last week, the only way to have an eternal kingdom is to have an eternal king. But Isaiah promptly answers our questions and belays our fears with this assurance of hope. With the final stanzas of the servant song running through the end of the chapter, he writes that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers and silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So we see here the death of this suffering servant. But that's not where Isaiah stops. He goes on and says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has been put to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for transgressors. So we see not only an atoning Messiah, we see not only that God came to dwell with us, take up our sorrows, and bear our griefs, but we see that after he's been crushed and put to grief, He will see his offspring and he will prolong his days. We see that after he poured out his soul to death and bore the sin of many, he is not only righteous but risen. He is not only here to redeem our past, but he is here to pray for our future. He is not only sufficient, but he is victorious. What you need to know today is that Christ had to die because of who we are as sinners, but death had no claim on him because of who he was as the Son of God. Because death is the punishment for and release from sin, but where there is no guilt, there is no sentence, and where there is no sin, there is no death. So as we leave here today, be encouraged that the Messiah that we so desperately need has been provided to us, and not in a half measure. And as he came, he did not only do so in the fashion that we may be accustomed to in a modern Christmas. He didn't provide for us what we wanted, he provided to us what we needed. And we have the ability to stand before a holy God in his righteousness, not our own. And in that guaranteed unshakable righteousness, we have a victory over death, we have an inheritance with him that will never perish or expire, and a home that can't be taken away from us or be assailed in. Because the home that we are making is in the very presence of God. So I pray that as we go here, we would not have any confusion in our mind as to what God's position is on ours. That in our own qualifications, we are completely impoverished, mortally wounded, and hopelessly guilty. And in Christ, we are rich beyond our wildest imaginations, abounding in life, and completely righteous. And if this is new to you, or if this is something that you want to discuss with either me or Jeff or one of the other elders, anyone with a badge, please come up and do so, because it's the most important thing that you're going to hear today. That Christ came not only as a deliverance for the righteous, but a balm for the wounded, but a Savior to sinners. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this time in your word. Thank you so much for delivering us a savior who gives us not what we want, but what we need, who works in history, through history, for your glory. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, for the spirit that dwells in us and the love that you have that empowers us to work mightily for who you are. Father, I pray as we approach Christmas, we would not be blind to the blessing that you've given us, but we would be receptive and willing and open to understand exactly who it is that Christ came to be for us. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your people. I thank you for uh, your body of the church. In Jesus' name, amen.